Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, Pokemon Go, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with meditation teacher and author Christopher Titmus. Christopher Titmus is an insight meditation teacher, author, and former Buddhist Theravada monk. He is the co-founder of Gaia House, a large Buddhist retreat center in Devon, England, where he has been teaching since the early 1980s. A renowned proponent of engaged Buddhism, Christopher is the author of numerous books and twice ran for election as a Green Party candidate in England. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Walking, Nature, and Engaged Buddhism. Christopher, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. Thank you. I understand you just got back from a yatra, is that correct? Yes. So we've been holding the yatra every year at the same time, late July. This is a pilgrimage? Yes. So it's a pilgrimage without a destination. So in other words, the walk itself is the pilgrimage. This takes place in the foothills of the Pyrenees. There are around 150 of us, and 25 of those are under 16 years of age. So it ranges from babies in arms up to this old waller who is talking to you right now. (laughs) And so you're walking in the Pyrenees for, you said, 10 days? Yes. So the farmers in France, via the mayor of the villages, they provide us with the land often with shade and a stream running through, and we camp there. And generally speaking, we'll change the location around four times over the 10 days. And so it's not continuous walking. There's some actual camping and staying in the same area going on. Yes. So the walk itself is the central focus. We walk in single file in silence, Generally speaking, three to four hours in the morning period, a couple of hours in the afternoon. But the Yatra also includes in it morning meditations at uh, 6.30, lunch. It's a um, plant-based diet completely that we have for uh, everybody. And in the afternoon periods, there will be checking groups, various kinds of Dharma themes to explore. And then in the evening time, after the meal, we'll have more meditation, guided meditations, and uh, the evening Dharma talk, which usually lasts 45 minutes to the hour. And that's roughly the program running through the 10 days. Wow, that sounds wonderful. So you have like over 100 people kind of marching in a single file around the mountains. Just yeah, sounds... we're in the very, very foothills, obviously with children and uh, with climate. So we're more looking up to the mountains and going up the mountains and looking down, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yes, wow. And does this harken back to your Thai monastic training in some yeah, way? it does. So with Ajahn Damodaro, with whom I spent three years in his Vipassana monastery in the south of Thailand. He, two or three times or so in a year, 
would announce in the morning time Yatra. And similar kind of principles, the long single line, sometimes through the forests, sometimes through the fields, and of course with the support of the local Thai villages, and this is how we were fed in the morning, and in the evening time there would be teachings taking place. Hundreds of people from surrounding villages would come. And whereas Europe, we tend to be rather polite and finish around 9.30 in the evening, Thai is a little bit more timeless. So sometimes it would be 10, midnight, 2 or 3 in the morning, and then we'd be up at 4.30 to go on the begging round and then try and catch a nap sometime during the day. But it was precious, and that really gave me the inspiration to see if we could have a kind of Western application of the Yatra. And what do you find is the chief benefit of the Yatra for most people? Well, hopefully the chief benefit is complete unexcelled liberation. <laughs> uh, and that certainly is spoken of and referred to. But alongside that, it is an emergence out of the usual roles, husband, father, mother, wife, children, jobs, studies, or whatever. And it gives an opportunity for closeness and intimacy with the nature, you know, it's a precious part. And I don't have any romantic views about the nature. I think the nature is a, a huge challenge to be with, sometimes beautiful and sometimes obviously like we just had with the heat, uh, very, mm. very demanding. Another core feature of the program is with such a large group, many of them wealth of experience, there is a real opportunity for some depth of sharing that obviously in the silent retreat forms is not always available. So the discussions and the explorations and the questionings that go on are really important with us giving some guidance in the walking itself, the intimacy with the elements, and some reflection. And that's the kind of heart and soul, we might say, of the 10-day retreat. It's genuinely intended to be a really transforming and freeing up process. That the whole focus focuses around that as much as we possibly can, as well as dealing with all the, the stuff that goes on with people's lives. Mm. And so in this environment of the foothills of the Pyrenees with all the massive rock and enormous sky and so on, even in a very non-romantic way, do you find that the nature itself contributes to the process of opening for people? I would regard it actually as indispensable. In other words, if I, just, if I may, just reflect on my own uh, life a little bit. From the early 20s, I had the joy, the privilege, and the challenge of the journey across uh, Asia, walking and hitching and busing and training through maybe... 20 plus countries. And then, of course, in the forest with Ajahn Buddha Dasa for extended periods, the time in the cave, the various other forms of walking before I did walks in the outback in Australia, through Turkey, Afghanistan, and so on. And feeling my reflections that the nature has been a precious and important contribution to this sense of intimacy and solidarity with the elements. And in other words, we're all built of the same stuff. And in the, to use your lovely website name, in the deconstructing of the self, and not 
making it so important, it gives us an opportunity for a deeper sense of things because the self is hopefully quiet as much as possible. And so do you feel that it's mainly the silence of nature and the intimacy of the elements that is so helpful and indispensable here? Or is there some other aspect that you try to bring out for people? With the nature, as they say in Thailand, Dharma Chat. So the word nature is used in the same breath as Dharma. So in other words, rather than giving a great deal of selfness to nature and substance to uh, nature, there is the relationship of the perceiver, i.e. the human being, of what is perceived. And in that dynamic, as you mentioned, with the silence, there is a tremendous opportunity for receptivity. And in that dynamic of so-called self and so-called other, the nature, in that process, in the movement that takes place, there's a potential for some authentic realizations and insights. And the silence is a key to that. But not to exaggerate it to the point, language doesn't obstruct truth or obstruct the reality, but also can make a contribution as much as silence. Yes. So we don't want to uh, reify the nature as something so particularly important or the silence as particularly important. Yes, exactly. It's part of the exploration without exaggerating one feature of this field of existence. I think that for many individuals, the image of someone making the exploration towards awakening or liberation mainly takes the form of seated meditation in a retreat or in a cave in some way. It's an individual experience and probably inside in some way and definitely seated. So I think it's fascinating that this yatra format that you're using is none of those three things. It's outside, it's in a group, and it's standing and walking around. And if I could expand, because you touched upon a rather important point, that there is certain benefits, and if I may say, some kind of shadows which are historical. What I mean by that, there is a tendency towards the seated posture, indoors, in the silence, with meditation, receiving of teachings, reporting to the teacher, etc. And of course, I'm one of those who uh, has been engaged in that expression for 40, 50 years, maybe, either as a practitioner or as a teacher, backstroke practitioner. But one has to remember that the Buddha, radical down to his toenails, broke away from the limitation of that form, meaning, first of all, it was sitting, walking, standing, and reclining, so the application of the four postures there, also spoke regularly about the importance of the Sangha, taking refuge in the Sangha, meaning that contact and company with the like-minded people, and really keeping as much as we can our language and our priorities on the waking up process. But there's also another point as well, which I think is really important. We hear a lot from the teachers, including Niswala, about the importance of anicca, about of seeing change and seeing impermanence. But the Buddha's Dharma is a liberation Dharma. 
And what I mean by that is, it's allowing the world of change, which means thoughts, states of mind, so-called possessions and items, to kind of shrink in consciousness, not to exaggerate, even to a minor degree, their importance, so that the world of impermanence, the world of things and goods and items and knowledge and information, is not overwhelming us. And therefore, allowing that to shrink, to use the, uh, the word here, gives an opportunity for a real freeing up. The constant seeing of impermanence itself may not be liberating. It's just recognizing its modest place in the field of existence. How does that relate to the yatra format? I take another sideways step, if I may, for a moment. Yeah, uh, in any way that you want to expound on this, this is very interesting. All right. So, and I love the discourses of the Buddha. Right behind me are the Samyutta Nikaya, the Diga Nikaya, and the Majjhima Nikaya. These are a major reference. And when I explore, I get a much bigger sense of the depth and the expanse of the Buddha's teachings. So on the Yatcha, to respond to your question, we endeavor to address every issue in the Eightfold Path. So the mindfulness, which is important, the Samadhi, which is important, is in harmony and connection with our actions in the world, with our intentions, with our understanding, with our communications, with the creative energy or effort that we apply. So the Buddha Dharma really is an encouragement to address every feature of our life there, not just concentrate and identify with a kind of solidification of sitting meditation, but to really expand to the whole. And the Yatra and other um, ways of serving the Dharma is a small step to expanding out this exploration. And that's what we do on the Yatra. So we have discussions about ethics, sustainability, money, sexuality, communication, because the Dharma leaves no stone unturned. It's a freeing up teaching. And so the Yatra makes a contribution in that direction. And so that is a holistic view of the practice and quite fascinating. I want to get back to that. You mentioned that you learned to do this format when you were a monk in Thailand and that you were traveling around Asia in the late 60s, which seems to have been a thing. Yes, that's right. Yep. Can you just briefly describe how you ended up from England going to a monastery in Thailand? In 1967, which uh, in England is famous for two things, the Summer of Love, for one, and second, the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Cubs Band, which some of us revere with a religious enthusiasm and continue to do so. <laughs> I am one of those people. Oh, you're good. Oh, really? Nice. I have uh, lots of photographs on my wall, my teachers, my travels, Ramana Maharshi, Bodhgaya, and others, and including, that is a picture of the four Beatles, the other four <laughs> gods of this country. And out of the period of time, that is early 1967, in my early 20s, I then um, made the overland journey. 
while making that journey, I became interested in the Buddhist teachings, and I read a small booklet in Saranath on the Buddhist teachings, which I actually have kept here. And there were two points that really stood out for me. One, the obvious one, nothing lasts. Nothing has any continuity in this everyday world, and therefore nothing is worth holding on to because of its unreliability, its lack of perpetual presence. And the second, which goes with that, of course, since this dynamic is going on, nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. And having been on the road for some time, maybe in 1968 or so, that it really rang bells inside. So with more reading and reflection there, the next step, which was 1970, uh, I then decided to take ordination. If I may add a little here, that having been on the road and engaged in the outer journey, um, it really felt like time, this is early 1970, to make an inner journey. What's going on inside? I wasn't in any kind of crisis, no existential issues. I was happy. I was enjoying life, doing what I wanted to do. And this was the next step for me. And that's what led me into the ordination. Now, one of the things that 1967 is also famous for is psychedelics. So I'm curious if you're one of the many Buddhist teachers who started some of their practice from the experiences that came through that. Yes. So I explored. I'll try to remember. Marijuana, hash, opium, uppers and downers, LSD, and having explored these, you know, I'm kind of a product of the hippie culture. So having explored these, it came to the point, this is before ordination, it came to the point where I thought, well, these lovely experiences, I never had any bad trip or so forth, but it's not deep enough, it won't last, and I could see as well that some of those who were on the road and preaching the virtues of the psychedelics, both chemical and plant-based, were returning home, and in plenty of cases, despite all their profound experiences, quickly settled back into consumerism, money-making lifestyle, and the full catastrophe. So uh, having experienced, having genuinely benefited, having seen the limitations, so since late 1969 or the very, very beginning of 1970, I haven't touched a single psychedelic or plant-based and have no interest. Not, not boasting, it's just a simple fact. Yes. And so it doesn't sound like those played a major role in you deciding to take up full-time no. monk's robes. Right. It was you know, appreciated and benefited there, but it wasn't, oh my gosh, what consciousness is capable of. I think the experience of freedom on the road was more profound and more important for me in that intimacy uh, with the nature, has and continues to have a stronger resonance than uh, the drugs. Now, another thing that occurs to me about those years would be the effect of the Vietnam War, which was, of course, at its height during that period, and especially in Southeast Asia, right next to Thailand. So 
Was there any strong influence on you coming from this worldwide catastrophe of the Vietnam War? Yes, in different ways. One is I have been anti-war my whole life. And there hasn't been anything I've witnessed or seen which gives me any cause for doubt about that. I think the quiet discipline and practice of exploring a constructive engagement with life rather than a destructive is an important aspect of Dharma teachings. In the monastery itself, there were a number, um, this is the early 1970s period, mostly of um, US citizens who had been Georgiais or had gone to Thailand on R&R from Rest and Recreation, from Vietnam, who also had a dramatic change of heart, a little bit because of what they witnessed in Vietnam, a little bit because of what they uh, did, and there were conversations which I had with those people. And there's one GI, and nothing as much has changed, by the way. Now we make war on our Muslim brothers and uh, sisters in the Arab communities. And as one GI once said to me, he said, it's a simplification, but it has some truth. He says, the old, the powerful, and the rich tell the young, the powerless, and the poor to go and kill each other. And those kind of statements, while a bit of an oversimplification, I think we as uh, people of the earth need to find creative and constructive ways for dialogue and communication. And it is the credit of the Buddha's Dharma that he addresses these issues. And I just have a book out. This is not a plug. (laughs) (laughs) Feel free to plug your book. It's called The Political Buddha. And I went through the text and found that many references to corruption, war, violence, the power of the Brahmins, the kings, the rulers, and ways that the Buddha and the communities of people, the impact it had on many, many people, and the Buddha's concerns about that. And this book is a certain concentration of the Buddha's teachings with a view just to expand out the body of the teachings, which includes the meditation hall, because as I mentioned, spend a lot, a lot of time every year for the past 45 years in meditation halls around the world. But it includes that which is more than that. And that's inner and outer mindfulness, inner and outer awareness, inner and outer change, I think really need to work together. That deconstruction of the self is uh, an imperative. And so do you feel like it is enough to simply sit in a monastery or in a retreat center deconstructing the self and using that in a way to help to cope with the almost unimaginably overwhelming intensity of the political events going on in our time, the catastrophe of Donald Trump and so on? I often see people tending to use these meditation skills to make themselves feel better in the face of these current issues. Is that enough or are we pointed towards doing something more with the practice? Your good point here is a regular, regular dialogue with a variety of Dharma friends who I love and respect immensely. And the way I look at the situation is, just drawing from the Buddha for a moment, 
he often refers to the world in terms of the psychology of the world. There are the gods in the world, and there are the humans, and there are the angels and the azuras, the violent, the aggressive personas, and much, much more. And I think it would be an unfair pressure on people to be able to expect, including uh, the Sangha of practitioners, to be able to engage in protest. As much as I would love them to do, it's a big ask. So there are some of us, and I am one of those, who really feel the inner and outer are a dynamic. And therefore, you know, I go to India every uh, year and try to give support to programs there. We have the interreligious school with 600 children, go to Israel, going to Palestine for 25 years, and other initiatives. It is not everybody's cup of tea. There are some beings who, in the Sangha, as well as outside, who sincerely wish to live a quiet, modest, caring, gentle way of life and don't want to enter into this brutal, political, capitalist, economic, pressurized situation. And for them, the quietness of their being is they are paying respect to that, they're paying respect to others who share that. Frankly, I think it's perfectly fine to spend days, weeks, months in a monastery or serving the Dharma in a center in the West or just living a, a way of life which is kindly to the earth, kindly to themselves and their loved ones. These people are really, really uh, important. It's not for me to put pressure on them. I sense a but coming. <laughs> there, there are plenty of buts, but in this case, <laughs> there is no but. So as a small example here, when I have the opportunity, which is regularly to say, to speak to others, the term which I use is agents of change. And as in the mindfulness discourse of the Buddha, where he refers to body, feeling, states of mind, and the Dharma, with each of that tetrad of the four, he refers to inner mindfulness and external mindfulness. My concern, it's a bit too much on the one side, on the inner. And the outer needs some exploration as well, which would include the way we use things, sustainability, communication, diet, a very, very important one, and our relationship to the world and the ways that we can serve other people. It is important, but that there are some people who like their solitude, I like the solitude too, who love their solitude and their aloneness and the quietude of the being. And there's a real place for such people in the Dharma. Yes, I resonate with that lifestyle or attitude towards living as well. And yet to maybe slightly exaggerate, but not much, the world is on fire. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's an absolute holocaust happening in the animal world and among poor people, among people of color. Our capitalist society is just devastating to these communities. And it's not clear to me that sitting quietly while that is happening is the highest form of dharma. You get my vote at 110% on this. So 
As a small example, last year, with some of the teachers, I established a Agents of Change program. So around 50 to 60, for four weeks together in Germany, another 50 to 60 in Israel. And the intention behind that was to use the knowledge and the skills and the experiences that we have to actually speak up. So very quickly now, to take an example, one of the difficulties for people is actually speaking in front of others. Um, it's a major difficulty. And what I did was on the first day, I asked people to go outside and write or remember and then speak to one person in front of them, you know, in pairs. The second day, a person had two in front of them. And by the 10th, 12th day, they might have 15 or 20 people in front of them. And the confidence began to grow. And it was a privilege to listen to such Dharma short talks. Other people, what was lacking was the knowledge and skills, how to promote what one can contribute to. And sometimes the self gets in the way, oh, I'm doing it for myself. No, 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 we're here to serve others, the animals and the environment. And that takes some organization. So the four weeks, what steps can we make to actually organize and put together, to work together? So the nourishing and the encouragement of that gives people a quiet confidence. I can do something. And those steps are important. The first step is the big one. It's providing some inspiration and also some insight and resources to find the voice, spoken and the action, spoken and written. And then we can respond because I think, you know, capitalism, the banking system, the politics, as you mentioned, are a real concern. And Al Gore says he doesn't use climate change anymore. He uses the language of climate crisis. And I think that's much more appropriate and uh, immediate. And you noticed the direct results of this when you were hiking on Yatra in the Pyrenees, correct? I notice it there, but also, of course, with Australia as well. And in the Middle East, where last summer, it didn't rain between May and mid-September. And the summer is over in August. And by the second week of September, it was still 43 degrees. And having moved through different climates there, the French farmers said to us that it rained for weeks and weeks until middle of May. So then the, nothing could be planted because the fields were flooded. Then it stopped raining. And then the ground went completely hard. And the repercussions of all of this, with all the scientific evidence, means, as, as you said earlier, we have to find ways to explore change. And this morning, I live in Totnes, which is a very progressive town. It sparked the transition town movement and lots of good discussions take place and actions. So this morning, I uh, spoke at the Reconomy Center with one of the people there. I have a desk in this place. And in talking with him, it's that finding groups and networks of people working together because the most interesting and thoughtful politics today is non-party politics. 
I've virtually given up on party politics. And I think it's outside of party politics that the real political thoughtfulness and actions are taking place. And that's where uh, I go. And how do you recommend, if someone really wants to engage in this path of outward mindfulness or bringing their meditation practice into political change or social or community change, what does it look like to wed this process of self-deconstruction, of working towards liberation internally? How does that fit or work with external engagement in a really practical sense? Yes. So in the practical, the deconstruct, one has to keep remembering in the Dharma of the middle way, it is to embrace the extremes. So what I mean by that, any holding to self, therefore it's not getting deconstructed, it's got substance, is an extreme position. But also, the same principle has to apply outwardly. If I give, shall we say, too much weight and authority to Donald Trump, the movements of the far right, the ongoing tragedies due to war and famine, and they give too much solidity to it, the size of it is disheartening. One feels a little overwhelmed by the scale. The outcome of that is we feel helpless as human beings. We can't act. So not to be suffering over the event is already to have deconstructed it. Not to be suffering over the appearance of I in oneself is already to have deconstructed it. And that can free up the being, that means the middle way there, towards going out, meeting with people who are thoughtful and caring, with whom one says, these are the like-minded people. Spiritually, religiously, philosophically, politically, socially, we need to find those people. It's getting out of the front door and saying, what's going on tonight in my hometown or in my city? Who can I write to? Who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to have a coffee with, etc.? And that is the first, middle, and sometimes the ongoing step in terms of inner deconstruction, outer deconstruction to free the being up. Now, as you may know, I live in the Bay Area and have spent quite a bit of time living in Berkeley, and I'm over there many times a week, just a few minutes away, and it's a huge, famous liberal college town. Yes, I know it. Yeah, and so recently there have been events put on by neo-Nazis there, and those have been met with violence by counter or anti-fascist protesters and so on. It's a very tense situation with a lot of real anger and perhaps justified outrage. I'm curious, how would your program of finding someone to sit within a coffee shop fit in with that sort of high-intensity situation? In your mind, how would an engaged Buddhist engage with a neo-Nazi rally where they're calling for, you know, the murder of millions of people? Mm. Um, just speak a little bit firsthand with these areas. So for years, since the early 1990s, I've been going every year, sometimes twice a year, to uh, Israel and with the Palestinians, and with the Palestinians working with the families of the martyrs, those mostly men who disappeared 
were killed, wounded, traumatized, etc. And the, the family, the women who often have to carry the emotional weight as well. So I worked in the uh, women's center. And quite understandably, there's a lot of frustration and anger around, sometimes very, very intense. And sometimes, of course, uh, work with the families of the suicide bombers and uh, others. And there's also, of course, what takes place in uh, Israel, and as you witness in uh, Berkeley and elsewhere, this kind of rage against life that goes on. The key is not the violence inflicting the violence, either of the left or from the right, with all the ramifications. Somehow or other, amidst all of that, in a way, we've got to start listening. We've got to really try to find out what is the mindset which generates so much reactivity and justifies it. And that's where the communication has to come in. And that means that people, when they get to listen to each other, whether it's called Israelis and Palestinians, whether it's called the left and the right, whether it's called the CEOs and the factory workers, uh, whether it's called the political masters and the marginalized poor and unemployed, it's bringing these polarized people to meet with each other. And the communication is the key because anger and blame, which is justified again and again, reinforces the state of mind of the other. Not only is it a tragedy, but it actually, it doesn't work. And having been on plenty of demonstrations over the years in various countries for various reasons, the re-anger, the reactivity, whether it's from the protesters or whether it's directed at the protesters or whether the pressure from the police to get the protesters to be angry, somehow we need the inner to stay cool and Keep the communication going. Keep the language going. And somewhere in all of that, there may be a doorway open. Maybe. But listening is critical in all of this. And so can you take us a step further, assuming that listeners are meditation practitioners? How can we really go even one step further with this? Or what would you suggest? Is it a kind of mindfulness of emotions? Is it mindfulness of listening? I mean, I'm sure it's all of those things, but what would your recommendation be in real specific terms? In specific terms, as I mentioned earlier, getting out of the front door is important. When we had some protests, remember this, a small incident from some years ago here in Totnes. The British have been at war over the centuries more than in any other country on earth. We have memorials to the dead in around 150 countries in this world. And of course, America has is it 800 army camps scattered around the world, etc. There's a lot of unresolved. So as a small example... We had a small protest after one of the invasions of yet another poor Arab country. And a friend rang me up on the Friday night. We were talking and we said we should do something on Saturday morning because it's a shopping day. It's a town of 8,000 people. So what we did, made some posters there and we sent out a few emails. And then I said, we're going to walk up the high street slower 
than the most mindful meditator in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition. <laughs> and that's what we did. We walked really, really slow. So for about half a kilometer, it probably took us 45 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe, I can't remember, to walk up. And then in the marketplace, we formed a circle and then I shared a few words, answered a few questions. And out of that, some other people began to join and then they began to grow a little bit. So in the morning meeting this morning, in talking with one of the good uh, team in the economy center, he said, we need boldness. We need something unusual. We need something which is audacious and something which sparks. And emptiness or a deconstruct there is to be receptive to the fresh idea, which is original, and out of that some activity will come. So we prepare the inner to engage with the outer. If we keep it in mind, we're sitting on the cushion, not for ourselves, but uh, as a preparation to be a full human being for the welfare of people, animals, and the environment. And then that, for me, gives extra motivation when sitting on the meditation cushion and teaching. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're proposing or you're describing finding emptiness within and having a clear intention and then kind of listening or waiting for inspired action to arise out of that. Nearly. So yes, with the depth, then as you pointed out, in comes the intention. We can't wait too long because the world won't be around if we wait too long. So a certain clarity, you don't have to be perfect, far from it, in which the intentions that link in the eightfold path is then supported. If it's an authentic intention, it is supported with an action. If there is no action with the intention, it's a fantasy. It's got no reality to it. It's just the self masquerading as wise or clear intention. So a human being, as the Buddha commented, we are known by our actions, about what we do in this world. And that intention brings about the action. And that relationship of meditation, awareness, the reduction of self-interest, getting the material world into a perspective, can simultaneously contribute to our engagement with the world. It is not a situation where we do all the work on ourselves, and then afterwards, at some time in the future, we say, oh, now I'm ready to do something. We are already in the world. We are already engaged. Everything that we buy is the confirmation of our engagement with the world. So I say it goes on simultaneously. And to recognize and appreciate that, and what I find for myself with this, that the Sangha, I haven't got in mind just the Buddhist Sangha here, but the company of the like-minded people are precious. And Buddhang Saranangha Charming, and then the last one, Sangang Saranangha Charming. I, I go for refuge in those people who I love and appreciate, who share, who have insights, understanding, and give inspiration. And then after that, we start doing things. We can't do it by ourselves, obviously. We need a community of people. And sometimes one person says, I'm going to do this, put the word out, a few others join, and it starts to get into a flow. 
So it's not something that we're attempting to do all alone. We connect in with our community and maybe even particularly our meditation community to help ourselves have the strength and direction for external action. Yes, exactly. The community is indispensable. And just go back to myself for a moment. So sometimes I'm in the world where my community and networks is not available, but I know they're around. So I can be in certain meetings, I can be in certain kinds of engagement there. So if I may say twice, I stood for Parliament for the Green Party some nearly 30 years ago now, and also had the opportunity to listen and talk with other people, receive much nourishment from them, and out of that contributed to the voice, contributed to what we write. And it's going to be community which changes this world, not these powerful uh, politicians who rather sadly, in far too many of them, have really lost the connection with the grassroots. Yeah. So many of the people who listen to this particular podcast tend to be practitioners, I would say, more on the secular Dharma or secular Buddhist Mm. side of the street, if we want to divide it into sides. And I know that you are, if I'm not mistaken, a religious Buddhist. Currently in the West, there is, as you pointed out, some identification with what might be called the secular Buddhist tradition. And there are others who are more identified with the religious Buddhist tradition. I'm not either direction. It's not my interest nor priority. So on the secular side, I think there is a genuine value in freeing up some of the religious dogma, ceremonies, rituals, and much, much more. And that can give an opportunity for people to listen to the Dharma, explore the teachings, which enables some depth to take place, knowing that there isn't any extra religious baggage that goes along with it. During my uh, years of connection with the Gaia House, I always encouraged the good team of trustees and teachers, let's only have flowers at the front of the meditation hall rather than any Buddha images. That has changed since, but in my years, we just had flowers at the front there. My concern with secular Buddhism, it's two or three points. One is that it can end up at the loss and expense of the profoundly mystical, the spiritual, and some of the beautiful acts of giving which take place out of the religious tradition. So as a beneficiary of the religious tradition, six years as a Buddhist monk, teaching for 45 years in the Thai monastery in Bodhgaya and Saranath, obviously I have a huge amount to be grateful for to the religious Buddhist world for all that it has given. I can't imagine that secular Buddhism will ever be able to offer years of teachings without charges, because it's a religious spirit that offers that. And also being equally concerned with how religion, like science in the West, can take away or reduce the authority of the human being. 
So sometimes some will pay more deference to religion, religious authorities, religious uh, traditions, and identify in that way. Not my thing at all there. But others will give the same kind of deference to the largely patriarchal, I must say, scientific tradition. More than 80-85% are scientists, are men. And great authority to the conclusions which are being drawn at this time. And I take the view, human being, we don't need the authority of either. There is enough authority to know reality and truth without deference to scientific formats or religious. So, as you can tell, a little endeavor to not be identified in either direction. Yeah, thank you for clarifying. I think there's a strong urge to kind of land in one camp or another, and there's deep wisdom in not allowing yourself to be labeled in any of those ways. I'm curious, here you are someone who has dedicated the majority of their life to the Buddha Dharma, to meditating uh, in a very serious way, and to teaching these practices and teachings to the whole world right? This has been your work in this life, seemingly. And so, you know, here we are on this podcast, and you have an opportunity to speak to thousands of people on this topic. And I'm just curious, without any prompting from me, what would you like to share with listeners? I would like to share in the way of the priority. So what is meant by that is that Liberation, emancipation, the freedom of human beings is truly precious. And that means the reduction and the ending of life being perceived just in problematic ways, which generates so much suffering for oneself and also for others. And this waking up, this freedom of the human being, if we really keep that as center stage, day in and day out, we will not so easily nor so quickly get lost in the relative, in the mundane, in the world of extremes, of conflicts, and all the anguish that goes with it. So liberation, the freedom of the being, and the recognition that out of that, quite naturally, comes friendship in life, kindness, insights, and wisdom. It just comes naturally. There's a receptivity to that with oneself and others. So even our precious methods and techniques, mindfulness of breathing, working with the body, looking at thought and self-compassion exercises, loving-kindness exercises, while having a modest, temporary, practical application also can get in the way. They are a useful construct, but liberation is unconstructed. Therefore, the constructed, called the retreat, called the relationship to the teacher and the teacher's relationship to the practitioner, the yogi, and many of the other constructs, they are useful relative tools. We need to be mindful in the sangha of not getting absorbed into them so that something other than the transcendent, called liberation, is really the 
priority. And that is unconstructable and therefore doesn't know birth and death because the birth and death is in the field of the constructed. The second there is in working with people over the years in the many ways of summarizing the engagement with life, with human beings and with animals too, is the deep human wish to be loved and to be understood. And Dharma, in its divine status, we might say, is a teaching which explicitly encourages us to love, called metta, and to contribute to being understood, the understanding of others and the understanding of oneself. And that focus, if we keep those two points in mind, liberation, freedom, the unconstructed, and the deep interest while we live of the power of love, friendship, and the wish to be understood and to understand, we'll know the Dharma in its depth and in its profound beauty. That's the comment. I'm so honored to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. May the exploration of this extraordinary event of life continue in its fullness and in its richness. Thank you, Christopher. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. 
I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>